Okay, hello everybody, today is Friday, another Anything Goes Friday, welcome to the show. And on Fridays recently, I've been talking about the story of Stephen Avery, as well as his nephew Brendan Dassey, who were made famous because of the Netflix docuseries, Making a Murderer. But you'll see from the title of this episode that it is The Murder of Teresa Hallback, and I felt that it was only appropriate to do an episode that was more focused on her, because if there is a series out there called Making a Murderer, she is the victim in question whom this entire story is centered around. But to provide a little bit of context, Stephen Avery was wrongfully convicted in the 1980s for the rape, assault, and attempted murder of Penny Bernston, but DNA evidence would later exonerate him, and he would be released from prison in 2003. And I think almost everybody is in agreement that Stephen Avery did not commit the attack on Penny Bernston, even though there are lots of reasons why he was wrongfully convicted. But the DNA evidence pointed toward a different perpetrator, someone named Gregory Allen. However, after the release of Stephen Avery, he filed a wrongful conviction lawsuit that, would, that was to the tune of $36 million. And could that have been a motive to frame him for a different crime. And the way that Making a Murderer presented the story, they were definitely leaning towards Stephen Avery being innocent of the murder of Teresa Hallback, but they always left the possibility open, did he actually do it? And moreover, a second participant was introduced, and that was Stephen's own nephew, Brendan Dassey, who was also convicted. But um, if you watch Making a Murderer, it's a very well-done, well-presented narrative. However, when it came to the actual details about the murder of Teresa Hallback, as a viewer, I found that I was rather confused. So to um, help us out, I have two books here. One of them is called Wrecking Crew by John Farrakh, F-E-R-A-K. I am so sorry, the last time I talked about him on the channel, I called him John Freak. That was just a dyslexic moment on my part, but it's F-E-R-A-K, same letters, just spelled differently, and it actually features uh, Stephen's attorney, Kathleen Zellner, on the cover. And the other one is Illusion of Justice by Jerry Buting. I've read several segments from that one on the previous episodes that I've put into the playlist about um, Stephen Avery, but this is the first time that I'm actually getting into some of the source material from John Farrakh's book. So, let's have a quick read right here, and it says, It was a Thursday night, November 3rd, 2005. A fiercely independent, happy-go-lucky woman from the heart of dairy country was gone. No one had seen or heard from her during the past four days. Television anchors painted a grim outlook as photos of Teresa Hallback flashed across the screen. Viewers were left uneasy and fearful of a worst-case scenario. Surely someone watching the distressing news would remember encountering Teresa over the past few days. At least, that's what the small town, county, and, and county sheriff's office in Chilton, Wisconsin, hoped. But it was not Teresa's face displayed on the television screen that drew a red flag with one of the Manitowoc County residents. It was the image of her missing sports utility vehicle, a Toyota RAV4. Now, what happened to Teresa Holbach is still 
somewhat of a mystery. I don't think that anyone in the general public has all of the answers. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who do know somebody knows everything that happened to her. But the amount of blame, as well as just the way that the authorities created this enormous case based on speculation. Okay, so if you've heard so far, 2005, Teresa Holbach has disappeared. And I'm going to jump over to Jerry Buting's book, Illusion of Justice, and this is from chapter 21. And I would just like to read the whole segment because he talks about the uh, theory involving what um, the criminal, or criminals plural, actually did to Teresa. Because the act of speaking against one's own interests seems so counterintuitive, false confessions are extraordinarily dangerous evidence. Juries give confessions a great deal of credence, even when they show signs of being drastically unreliable, such as the confession of Brendan Dassey. It revealed nothing trustworthy about the death of Teresa Holbach, but was a living, breathing gauge of the great lengths which the prosecution and the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office were willing to go in their pursuit of Stephen Avery. From the outset, Ken Kratz's description of the confession at a press conference on March 2nd 2006, which was echoed in the details of the criminal complaint that Teresa Holbach had been stabbed, her throat had been slit, then strangled, and finally shot, sounded ridiculous to me. And indeed, not long after Kratz so triumphantly declared, we have now determined what occurred sometime between 3.45 p.m. and 10 or 11 p.m. on the 31st of October. The wheels started to fly off. Contrary to Kratz's pronou yeah, pronouncement, the prosecution did not know what happened in 2005 because Brendan Dassey himself did not know. And of course, this is written by one of the defense counsels for Stephen Avery. Of course, he's taken the stance that Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are innocent. But as you heard in that uh, segment, shot, stabbed, as well as um, sexually assaulted because... This was not mentioned in that paragraph that I was reading right there, but when I was watching the second series of Making a Murderer, I should say season two, but I think they called it um, a series or the segments, something that had a different name for it. But in the second season, they talk about how they believe that Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey both took Teresa Hall back to a bedroom in Stephen Avery's residence and that she was shackled to a bed not just tied up, not just chained up, but they believe that she was shackled to a bed using leg irons and that she was sexually assaulted by both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. And then her body was placed back into her own Toyota RAV4 and that she was driven to an area on the Avery property, which is simply called the burn pit because it was used for fires. And that after all of those atrocious acts being shot, stabbed, sexually assaulted, shackled with the leg irons, all of those things. She is then set on fire, and then the Holback Toyota RAV4 was located to a different place on the Avery property. Now, the reason why Teresa Holback was there is because she was a photographer, and she was supposed to take some photos for Auto Trader. The Averys owned a salvage yard, and they had thousands, I, mean, I repeat, thousands of vehicles on the property, so she had every reason to be there. There's nothing suspicious about that. But the whole point is, there's just that overwhelming question. 
did the prosecution get it right? Well, what would be the reasons why that narrative is wrong? You may have heard something in Jerry Buting's segment right there about how Teresa is there for a legitimate reason, and Brendan Dassey confessed to being an active participant in this plan that was concocted by Stephen Avery. But was the confession legitimate? One thing that the attorney Kathleen Zellner tries to point out is, as soon as Brendan Dassey is away from the police officers, the interrogators, and is present with his mother, he recants the confession. He says that he didn't do it, and he confessed to something that he didn't do. They say that this is a sign of innocence. Now, there are two sides to every story, and one side is coming from the defense of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, saying that Stephen Avery had spent years in prison for a crime that he did not do. Why on earth would he try and throw his life away, or even risk throwing his life away, by murdering an innocent woman, as well as committing a horrible, heinous, and vicious act? And the other side comes from the prosecution, saying, well, that was just it. He thought that he was untouchable. He got out of prison, which, um, which he was wrongfully convicted of. Now, they don't seem to dispute that. But then he felt that, with his new lease on life, he had the opportunity to commit a crime, and no one would suspect him. If you're leaning one way or the other, you can share your opinions in the comments section down below. But I would like to continue with John Farrakh's book, Wrecking Crew, and go to page 72 when it says, Most people forget, or perhaps they don't realize, but when Avery was arrested on November 9th of 2005, his private criminal defense lawyers, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, were not in the picture. It was not until February of 2006, the, four, the fourth month of Avery's murder prosecution, that Avery severed ties with the Manitowa County Public Defender's Office as his legal representation. The Wisconsin Department of Justice and the Manitowa County Sheriff's personnel were surely alarmed and intimidated by the announcement of the new legal team coming on board to represent Stephen Avery. After all, Avery had continued to insist over and over that he was being framed, and he had nothing to do with Teresa Hallback's death. If the RAV4 was strategically put onto the Avery's property to ensure his arrest, and if the spare ignition was strategically dropped onto Avery's bedroom floor on the sixth day of the investigation by a member of the Manitowa County Sheriff's Department, you have to step back and ask yourself the following questions. Would it be more likely or less likely that the police were leading this investigation and had another bag of tricks in mind? So, um, to, prov to provide a little bit of context, the evidence that they have in favor of Stephen Avery goes beyond the Brendan Dassey confession. As you heard there, they have a spare key that was found on Stephen Avery's bedroom floor. There was also blood evidence that was found in the RAV4 Stephen Avery's blood, they say. Although, in a recent episode on the channel, I pulled out a segment of Jerry Buting's book when he says his personal theory is that Stephen Avery worked in a salvage yard. I mean, the family has a salvage yard. And there was also blood found in the bathroom. And that he thought the forensic investigators could have manipulated the blood in the bathroom, like scraping up the uh, blood cells, for lack of a better term. More than just cells, but the collection of his blood, and then they could have planted it in the car. I mean, that was just his personal theory. 
but let's read the question one more time. Would it be more likely or less likely that the police leading this investigation had another bag of tricks in mind? Well, definitely I can see the way that this book is leaning. It's leaning toward, yes, they're just filled with tricks, and it's also showing that they're trying to convict somebody for a crime, and that it's all about getting the conviction. And the stuff that I've talked about in some previous episodes is, of course the lawyers are going to try to do that, but the detectives, the investigators, the forensic technicians should not try to convict somebody if the evidence goes against them. The RAV4 was under the control of Whittier to put the car into the local police impound, where he and his cohorts had easy access. Of course, they had easy access to the evidence trove taken from the Avery property, as well as to numerous samples of DNA collected from the bedroom and bathroom of Teresa Hallback. The day after Teresa Hallback's RAV4 was found on the Avery property, we heard asked Deputy Craig Wendling with going over to Hallback's house. Investigator Weigert wanted to pick me up and take the evidence that would contain Teresa Hallback's DNA. It would be needed for further identification, and it's important to note that they did find Teresa's blood in the car as well. But I would like to uh, keep going here, as I said, um, in a, uh, another section of uh, John Farrakh's book. Sure enough, they collected DNA from the objects and vividly remembered being inside Teresa's place, and they were all still there. The items included her toothbrush, chapstick, and another lip moisturizer that had some hair stuck in it, as well as a hairbrush, and they even went over her bathroom floor. And it says, uh, kind of another challenge, really, if you believe these cops were crooked and hell-bent on putting Avery in prison to never come out alive, you have to realize it could only be logical that they would carry out additional dirty tricks in a win-at-all-costs mentality now that Avery had hired Strong and Buting to attempt to prove his innocence. On the other hand, it's possible that some of these cops had overestimated the strength and power of Avery's attorneys. So I think that that requires a lot of speculation on our part because, as, as um, John Farrakh has written in his book, He's providing an explanation about how DNA evidence could have been planted and manipulated, and how these authorities are almost in this position where they are not being monitored. And there's a famous quote from the Roman juvenile that comes up in the true crime world a lot, and it is, Who is there to guard the guards themselves? Meaning that an enormous amount of trust has been placed on law enforcement, on the forensic technicians, on the people who are handling evidence, that they're not going to do something malicious. And the case against Stephen Avery seems so arbitrary. I mean, it seems like a crime that was done without an overwhelming purpose. And it definitely doesn't seem like one that is done for a strong, um, strong premeditated, cold, methodical, and calculating motive. I mean, they said very clearly the prosecution's theory is that Teresa Holbach was sexually assaulted before she was murdered. I mean, that is motive in itself. However, is that what's really happened? And you have all of these um, possibilities in which the DNA could have been manipulated, how the blood evidence could have been manipulated, how they could have obtained forensic material from this place and that place, and, and they had done this, but they really is just a 
it could have been this, it could have been that. And that's my biggest challenge as somebody who is trying to follow along with this, because point number one, Teresa's uh, blood is found in her car. Point number two, her remains were allegedly, allegedly found in the uh, burn pit on the Avery property. His, his bedroom had her key in it. Her key was on the bedroom floor. Well, that is evidence, but could someone else have been responsible? Because they just have to take the word of the people who are investigating this. Everybody out of the house. Oh, hey, look what we found. Therefore, you must be guilty. And I guess that's why the show is called Making a Murderer. However, Kathleen Zellner, the attorney for Stephen Avery, who would take over after Jerry Buting, would point out that almost certainly Teresa's body was not burned in the burn pit because most likely she, her body was burned in a place that was enclosed because of the temperature required to affect the physical remains that were left behind. So in an open air burn pit, the temperature, well, I mean, the heat can escape, right? Because it's open air, it can go out in all directions. And the forensic examiner, the expert on bodies that have been burned, determined that more most likely she was burned in an enclosure. But the way that this has been shared with us as the viewers, it requires a little bit of deciphering on our part. And I'm definitely leaning towards Stephen Avery being innocent and leaning toward Brendan Dassey being innocent. And almost certainly, it seems like Brendan Dassey had his rights violated, and I'm really quite surprised that he has still been incarcerated for so long because of how he was more or less tricked and manipulated into confessing to something that he didn't quite fully understand. But um, I, I would like you guys to weigh in in the comments section down below. And um, I, this time, though, I would like to talk about how Teresa Hallback comes into the picture, because in addition to being the subject of making a murderer, I would like to also read a little bit about her biography and her life story, and to um, talk about her, because so much of the focus comes on to the suspects, but as you see from the title of this episode, I also wanted to share some info about Teresa, and there's an article at grazia.co.uk, and this one was written by Des Commons, just citing the source, and it says, who was Teresa Hallback? At the time of her death, Teresa Marie Hallback was a 25-year-old photographer from Wisconsin. Born in 1980, she grew up on a dairy farm near a small town called Green Bay. Perhaps you've heard of it. She had two brothers and two sisters. During college, Teresa went traveling to Mexico and Spain, as well as studying abroad in Australia, where she learned to scuba dive. When she graduated from college, the University of Wisconsin, that is, she originally took a job as a photographer in Green Bay, although she moved back down to live next to her parents' farm. Her favorite song to sing, according to her ex-boyfriend Ryan, was Picture by Sheryl Crow and Kid Rock. Yeah, I was just, um, I was actually just listening to that one recently, coincidentally. Not like super recently, but somebody was uh, playing it on their phone um, when I was sitting next to them a couple months ago, and it's always been kind of stuck with me. But, um... What did her friends say about her? She was a very energetic, spontaneous person, Kelly Pitson, a friend from preschool, said. Yeah, that's really a friend since preschool. We were always up to something, and it took a lot to scare her. 
She was a very outgoing and brave person. She was a friend to everybody, said Ryan, her old boyfriend. Photography was her life. She could do anything with a camera. What, what happened to Teresa Holbach in 2005? On October 31st of 2005, Teresa showed up at the Avery Salvage Lot to photograph a car for Auto Trader magazine. When her ex-boyfriend, Ryan, realized she was missing, a search party was sent out. On November 5th, Pam and Nicole Sturm, part of the group searching for Teresa, came across Teresa's dark-colored Toyota RAV4 on the Avery's property. According to Kurt Chandler in Milwaukee Magazine, tree branches covered the front end. A sheet of plywood and a rusty car hood leaned against its side. The license plate had been stripped off. Later, police found Teresa's license plates, a pair of handcuffs and leg irons in the house, and dried blood in the bathroom before finding human remains which were later proved to be Teresa's. That I'm almost certain they're talking about in the burn pit. Brendan Dassey, the nephew of Stephen Avery, later confessed to both Stephen and Brendan being associated with Teresa's murder. According to him, both he and Avery raped Teresa before stabbing and choking her and burning the body. It is said, though, in um, in Jerry Buting's book that they also allege that at one point she was shot. But where is Teresa's family now? You'll remember that from the series on This Is On Grazia, that Mike Holbach was a spokesperson for the Holbach family at the time of the trial, but he and the family declined to take part in the documentary Making a Murderer. Laura Riccardi, sorry, it's Ricciardi, Laura Ricciardi, one of the filmmakers told Vulture, we've invited the Holbach to participate in the film. We've invited the Holbach family to participate in the film. We've had coffee with Mike Holbach to discuss the idea, but they decided not to participate. So we filmed Mike at the press conferences that we held, but that was the extent of our interaction with him. And at this time, I'd also like to say a very big rest in peace to Teresa Holbach. And if Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are indeed innocent, I hope they will be released from prison one day. However, I can only be um, less and less optimistic as time goes by, but I really find that the entire system does not seem to be on the side of the accused. And these discussions come up time and time again. Yes, some people are very passionate about victims' rights, as they should be, but we have to remember that someone is innocent until proven guilty. And did Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey receive that fairness? Did they have those rights honored? I mean, when it comes to the rights of the accused, it almost seems like in this one, the authorities had their mind made up and then they started making the pieces fit. Now, that could be one thing, that some people just have it in their system, that these two guys, Avery and Dassey, were responsible for the crime. But in both the, of the books that I have here, Wrecking Crew and Illusion of Justice, as well as that article from Grazia, they say very clearly that there is distinct physical evidence left behind on the Avery property. And if what making a murderer has argued is true, the blood evidence would have had to have been strategically placed in Teresa Hallback's Toyota RAV4. So that's a little bit more than confirmation bias. That's a little bit more than just ignoring other possibilities. The statement 
from all of these sources is that Brendan Dassey and Stephen Avery were blatantly framed because, I mean, it could be about the $36 million lawsuit, and it could also be about all the public recognition that Stephen Avery was getting. He even did a public appearance with the governor and so on, and they just simply wanted to silence him. They wanted to get him out of the picture and to ignore some of the failures of the police departments and the law enforcement in the state of Wisconsin. But once again, that requires a little bit of guesswork. However, I'm really seeing only two possibilities. One is that some way, somehow, Brendan and Stephen are actually guilty of the murder of Teresa Hallback. And the other one is that they were deliberately framed by some entity, either within the police or the government or the system, or some type of governing body. And now I'll turn it over to you. If you have any comments about the murder of Teresa Holbach, I would like to read them down below. And I would also like to remind you guys that this show is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. And you can download the audio, take it on the go anywhere and anyhow. If you would like to download the video version, you can use YouTube Premium, but that one you have to pay for. Launchpad 1 is free. And there is always the buymeacoffee.com page. That's uh, under the name BlackboxNet88, the same as my Instagram handle. But um, if you'd like to make a contribution to support the show, anything is welcome. And it will all be put back into future efforts. BuyMeACoffee.com, BlackboxNet88. There's a link in the description box as well as Launchpad 1. That's the easiest way to find all the stuff. And anybody can write the show at BlackboxOnlineRadio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there is even the wonderful Instagram page that I keep talking about, BlackboxNed88, over there where you can hear the bonus podcast. And I will see you guys over there. Until next time.